friends all over the world. It's February already. Oh, Lord. <laughs> now, again, I always say this knowing that some years are down below in Australia and already enjoying the fantastic weather that goes with uh, being down in the southern hemisphere at this time of the year. But again, for those of us in the frozen north, uh, grand stretching evenings, lads, starting to look like uh, we might actually get through this winter as well. I hope you're all well. Uh, thanks very much to everybody who listened. I think we have a lot of new listeners from uh, New York in particular, thanks to the interview with Alan Gogarty last week. And thanks very much for the feedback there. I got a couple of messages on Instagram and on WhatsApp from people who really enjoyed Alan's story. And a fascinating character, extremely talented man, but also um, a great a great way of viewing life. You know, he doesn't seem to want to live his life with any sort of fear, despite suffering a massive heart attack back in December. Knows what he has to do, is ready to put the work in to get back out there and that. So uh, remember that the benefit for him is in Joyce's bar and public house, or Joyce's public house in Manhattan, uh, somewhere there between, uh, near, quite close to Hell's Kitchen there. Uh, and you will find that on February the 11th. So it's probably only a week or two away now as you're doing it. We are staying in America this week. And I'll explain to you a little bit about that in a second. But uh, just do me a favour if you can, right? I do mention the whole thing of the Patreon, right? Patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm if you can throw in a fiver a month. Podcasts, always free. Going to be free for everybody. It doesn't matter if, as uh, in that famous song that Christy Moore sang, if you're living under a bridge in Charing Cross or whatever you are, I want these things to be available to you. Money should never be uh, any uh, any hurdle to taking part in this community, to be part of it, and to feel in that connection to home and to Ireland if you're abroad. So they're always free. But that said... Uh, they do cost money to make. It cost me an awful lot of time to, to find guests and to put episodes together and to be sitting here talking to you. So if you can become part of that, uh, patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. If you can't, that's fine. You know, it's, it's there, they're there, they're free. I put it out there. That's the risk you take when you give something away. Uh, you're leaning on the goodness of people to do it. But do me a favour and share the episodes, right? Because I know that when I go into your Facebook group in Philadelphia or in Brisbane, and I put out a podcast there, and I'll always see that there'll always be a few people who listen for the first time. And they might listen to a second podcast and a third podcast and that kind of thing. So if you enjoy what I'm doing for you here every week, please put it in the group yourself, right? Rather than me coming in here, oh, you know, I'm going to tell everybody it's brilliant. Of course I am, right? But if you go in there and say, look, at listen to this fellow in Stockholm making a podcast for the Irish abroad. I really enjoyed this episode. Go in and have a listen. There's a few other episodes I thought were good. This is what they are. Stick a link in there, right? And doing that makes my life an awful lot easier. It means that I can concentrate on finding new guests in Brisbane or in New York rather than have to post in the Facebook groups. And to be honest, I also don't like to be annoying people, right? You know yourself how irritating it can get when someone one person starts spamming the shite out of the LinkedIn group or the Facebook group with the same thing. But it's really, you know, in this sort of globalised internet age, it's sort of the only way to reach people around the world. So while I apologise, I am also unapologetic on that front. It's a little bit of a... It doesn't make sense at all, but I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. So I'd be really, really grateful. And there are a few people who share every episode, and I'm really grateful to them for it. So if you do hear something that you like, or if it's something that you think is worth supporting, if there's, you know, if something that neighbours or friends or your Irish ambassador maybe hasn't heard of or whatever, feel free... Uh, to fire that link into the WhatsApp group, into the Facebook group, into the LinkedIn group. And uh, yeah, because the more, as I say, the more listeners we have, the more likely it is to find the people who are prepared to pay a fiver a month. And then, then I'll stop talking about it. I won't ever mention it again. I hope you're well. We're about six or seven weeks out from St. Patrick's Day at the time of uh, recording now. 
and I'm seeing this, uh, I got in touch there with the Qatar Irish Society, I think I'll have to chase them up, I was looking to talk to them because they have a huge gala dinner every year, as they do in uh, Kuala Lumpur, as far as I know, it's one of the biggest in the world, there's like thousands of people turning out in their finery for that, and the other day I got a mail, a mail off a fella here in Sweden, Tom, who has a, a microbrewery together with a fella called Kieran Blake from Cork, and you get these things because, you know, I would have been very involved in the Irish community. I would have started the GA club here. I would have been chairperson of the Swedish Irish Society. And you drift out of it, but not in people's minds. So they come and they go, all right, okay, you, you're obviously the man to talk to about this. So Tom uh, has somehow made some sort of a dragon. I'm not sure I quite understood it. And he was saying, yeah, can we have this in the St. Patrick's Day Parade? I think to myself, knock yourself out there, lads. Like, I'm not the person who makes that decision. But we certainly connected him to it, uh, to Carmel Melkvist there at the Swedish Irish Society. And he's going to hopefully be part of the parade now. I know they're talking in the background about that. So if there's anything special that you're doing, this is kind of like that roundup that they do in the RTE News that day where they go around every single village that has a parade in Ireland. And we're all glued to the bleeding television because we want to see if it's our village or our town or our suburb that gets featured on it. You know, there does be murder. But uh, if you don't get featured and everybody hates RTE when that happens. But yeah, I'd love to be able to include some of those details. Or if you're doing something special, especially if there's a special event or if you're having a special guest brought over to celebrate in the Middle East or out in Asia or in Australia or like that. So uh, get in touch about those things because... It's not just about people attending in the same way as like that benefit for Alan Gogarty. It's not people about be, people being able to go. Knowing these things sometimes is enough. Sometimes you might go in, throw in a few bob into a GoFundMe for Alan or something like that. But part of being you know, part of a global community is knowing what's going on in that community. And maybe that might inspire you to do something if you don't have time to do it this year with your own community, well, maybe you can do it next year. Or maybe you can do it the year after. Or maybe you can start the process of finding people who might like to do things like that for St. Patrick's Day. I always had this thing, like, you know, especially with your young kids, nobody really wants to go to a pub. You know, you can't sit down, you can't have a drink of peace and quiet because you have to look after the kids. And then they're running all over the place, wrecking the gaff and that kind of thing. So there has to be different ways. We, have to, we need to find different ways. And often we do that through gala dinners and parades where we have sort of bigger representation. That. But also in smaller places, if there's anything that we can involve, you know, in small towns, around New Zealand in small towns in, in you know there might be a small Irish community in a suburb in Seoul in Korea there I want to find out what you're all doing Right, that is enough of the housekeeping for this week. I have a few good episodes coming up, right? One in particular I think you're going to be interested in. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Larry Donnelly about voting rights for Irish people abroad. And you'll hear from Larry in a week or so's time. And he will be talking about votingrights.ie and the possibility of a referendum to return or to grant voting rights uh, to those of us who live abroad, because as it is the moment, lads, as soon as we move away from Ireland, after six months, we're gone, right? We're off to register, we don't get to vote, you're finished. And you have to move back and have an address in Ireland before you do that. And that is very much an outlier among Western democracies, right? Larry was born in Massachusetts, in the United States of America. So he has dual citizenship. He has Irish and American citizenship. So he votes in all the American elections that he's eligible for. And that's from, you know, local elections all the way on up to the president. And he can vote in Ireland, which is something that we can't do. And we certainly couldn't do if we lived in Massachusetts, as those of you who live there will know. So um, that's just one of those subjects that it's, it's up for, there is going to be a referendum or the government has promised a referendum. That's not the same thing as it's going to happen. You know what governments are like in promises. But that will be coming up in the near future. So I thought it was a good time to get in touch with Larry because he's also a professor of law uh, at the University College in Galway, the University in Galway there, so we go through that. That's coming up next week. This week is someone, I can't even remember why, I just thought, Jesus, it's time to talk to this fella, right? And this fella this week is none other than the pocket rocket, Wayne McCullough, uh, Irishman, Olympian, flag bearer at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, 
a silver medal winner four years later when um, uh, Ireland also won a gold medal in boxing uh, at the Barcelona Olympics. Um, yeah, I'm just a generally a fascinating character, right? And I'll tell you why. Because we tend to forget, except when it comes to rugby, that uh, for some reason, and maybe hockey, um, there is a sort of a divide on the island, obviously. Uh, Wayne was born and raised in the Shankill Road in Belfast, right? So he came from a loyalist part of Belfast, and yet he went on to carry the tricolour at the Olympics. He went on to wear the green singlet in the boxing ring. He went on to stand on the podium in an Irish jersey. He also went on uh, to represent Northern Ireland uh, in the Commonwealth Games and to do very, very well there as well. Then he went on to an unbelievable professional career, right? And the thing that sticks out uh, for me about him is, one is the silver medal at the Olympics, right? Because that's very hard to beat and we have so few medals, most of which come in boxing, a sport that I absolutely love. But the other thing is that he was never knocked down in his professional career, right? Which is absolutely amazing for somebody with the amount of fights that he had and the people that he met to never get knocked down in their professional career is just incredible really to me. So I got in touch with him because when he turned pro, Wayne was offered the chance, and he'll talk about uh, this uh, early on in the interview, right? He was offered the chance to go to Nevada in the United States of America, to Las Vegas, one of the sort of the spiritual homes of boxing, the other being Madison Square Garden in New York. And he got to go there to train with a guy called Eddie Futch, who's just, you know, there's a few trainers up there, Eddie Futch, Barney Eastwood for Irish people would be a famous boxing trainer, Freddie Roach would be another great one, you know, uh, there's a few that were around Mike Tyson, but one of the absolute legends of the game, right? And he got the chance to move to Nevada as a very, very young man himself, together with his then girlfriend, and he stayed there, right? So he moved there in the early 90s when he turned pro. And he's still there. And I thought, I'm going to have to look him up because Vegas is one of those places as well. And he talks a little bit about it where, you know, if you go there to enjoy yourself, you know, three or four days, you know, over a long weekend, that kind of thing is great crack. Well, living there is a totally different kettle of fish because you're out in the middle of the desert and that kind of thing. And you couldn't keep up with the pace of the strip. I used to say that you get ADHD just from driving down the strip because there's just, there's things happening 360 degrees. doesn't matter where you look. There's lights flashing and people doing stuff and things for sale and come here and go there and do that and eat this and do you want one of these and everything. So it is a mad place to live altogether. But Wayne and his wife have fashioned a tremendous life for themselves out there, and he's still involved in the sport of boxing. Um, so I got in touch with him there recently, and we sat down, and we could have talked for hours because he's just—he's such a nice guy, he's such an interesting guy, and he has a fantastic way of, of looking at things and of looking at the world. And here he is on the Global Gale for your listening pleasure. All right, I want you to make me jealous now, Wayne, because I'm sitting in cold and dark and freezing Stockholm. What's the weather like in Las Vegas, Nevada, when you're sitting talking to me, looking out the window? Well, it's actually, for us, for us, it's cold because I'm used to the warm weather now, don't we? So it's like um, probably 15 Celsius or something. 15. Uh, it's get, getting there. You wouldn't be wearing a jacket yeah. going out now. No, but well, the sun's out. Just, when the sun's out, it's okay. It's warm enough. When it, the nights in the morning gets cold, but... It does get down to like below the, the freezing point because they've got a, they've got a ski resort about forty five minutes from Vegas, mm. so it does it does because it's desert. You know, it holds the heat in the summer and it holds the cold in the winter. <laughs> it gets very chilly down there, all right. What, what does an average day look for like for you? Just before we started there, you were reminding me that it's it's thirty years almost uh, t- since you moved over there. What, what's an average day like for you over there now? Well, say February. February twentieth is when I I flew to America for my actually my pro debut was three days later. I left Ireland and my pro debut was three days later in, in LA. 
And on the 24th, I came to Vegas where I've been based for the last 30 years. <laughs> so, And was that solely because of Eddie Futch? Was that because he wanted you to yeah. be there? That was it? Yeah. You had no Eddie, choice in the matter? No, Eddie, Eddie Fudge. First of all, Eddie Fudge was 82 years old and he was ready to retire. Uh, he had he had Riddick Bowe, who was the heavyweight champion of the world at the time, and Mike McCallum, who was a three-time world champion. He was that's the last two fighters he had, and then he decided to, to have a look at the Olympics, and then he he took me on, and I thank goodness he did. Mm. <laughs> it was, um I couldn't believe I was coming to Eddie Fudge because it was as a kid I I read about him, I, I seen him on TV with Joe Frazier and stuff, mm. and I just thought this guy's going to train me. I'm like I was so like. Like starstruck by him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's like being picked up by Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles. If you play music, it's like right. Yeah. This guy is actually interested in me, you know. Especially at that age, I just thought, you know, he's he's like he's going to retire, but he he lived. He was ninety years old, and and I became world champion with him in two years and five months after turning pro. You know, so it was pretty quick. It was very quick. Now, in fairness, you had a fair amateur career, but even before that, can you remember the first time you walked into a boxing gym? Were you sold on boxing from the moment you started? Well, the funny thing is my two my two older brothers, I've got a brother six years older, Noel, and brother five years older, Alan, and they both boxed when I was a kid. So, you know, my brother Noel came in with a trophy, must have been that side, a little tiny trophy. <laughs> and I was, I was about seven years old, and I'm like, I want one of them. You know, I thought I want to get one of them because like, I was like, I'll, I'll definitely want to get one of them. So I, I went to the gym with Emmons and I played football, of course, at school and, you know, right through, like through um, secondary school. And I, I did cross country running. I played rugby a little bit. And, but boxing was the only, was one sport. It was, I was better at it. I was, I was good at soccer and stuff, football, but I was actually, just a one on one aspect of things was just better for me. And I, and I had my first fight when I was eight years old. And by the time I was 12, I had about 100 fights. <laughs> you know, so some of them in a ring, some of them in a schoolyard kind of thing, was it? <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing is, when I started boxing at that young age, like eight, nine, ten, you're in, in primary school, and then go to like 12, you go to secondary school. You know, people respected me. I was, I was I'm small, I'm like five, seven. So I'm small, but so going through like four foot, something, five foot. And people respected me because I fought. Them. I mean, it's, it's. I think maybe one school fight that was it lasted ten seconds. That was about the only thing there was. But everybody sort of backed off, even the the big guys and the, and the bullies. <laughs> you know, they sort of respected that he didn't fight a little bit. So. Yeah. It, Gladly, didn't have to do it much, which was good. <laughs> I, I remember being sort of six feet three inches tall, and there was one young fellow where we lived that I was afraid of, and he was a boxer, and he was probably about the same size as you at that age. And still to this day, I'd say I'd be afraid of him, but him just because the speed of him on his feet, like you know, I couldn't keep up with him at all, you know. Um, when you get into boxing in a place like Belfast, because, you know, in Belfast, in Dublin, certain cities have a reputation as being boxing cities. Did you feel that you had sort of very good competition when you were coming up as an amateur? You had good sparring, good people that you were meeting in competition and in the club every night when you went down? Yeah, well, the, I was. I started, and, I started and finished, and Albert Foundry was my club. It was just off the, like, the West Circle Road between, like, Upper, upper Shankle Road area. Mm. Like in the suburb, I was born. I was actually born on the Shankar Road, actually in Percy Street. It's, actually, I wasn't born in the hospital. I was born at home. Mm. <laughs> so I was born there, and then we moved to like Highfield Estate. I was there until I came to America. But my gym is like walking distance, you know. 
And there's, there was like a big running track and a soccer pitch. And then the gym was right beside it. And it was just handy for me to go there. You know what I mean? But the gym was full of, back then it was full of like loads of amateurs, professionals used to train there. You know, I'm at one time Barry McGuigan trained there. He was my hero. Mm. And so it was like a cross community thing as well. It was a good, good spot for everybody to go. And then when I got a little bit older, the gym split and was one, one went to Kern Lodge gym, which was on the Shangle. And Albert Foundry stayed there, Albert Foundry. And I, I stayed in Albert Foundry, of course. And at that point, there was only like three or four fighters left in the gym. <laughs> so I, I stuck with it. And, and, and I say there was a lot of, a lot of, I say it was all the boxing's always mixed, of course, on the wing. And it always crossed divide. And that, that was a good thing about, about, about boxing. It's one of those things you wouldn't think really, Wayne, right? Because, you know, it's seen as an aggressive sport and it's brawling and, you know, you want to go in there and take the head off the other fella. Now, anybody who gets into a ring knows that that's not what it's like at all, you know? Did you feel that thing of identity or was that left at the door of the club? Like, nobody cared if a fella was from the Falls Road or from the Shankill Road. That that was all just left outside, was it? Yeah, well, most of the time, back then, in the old days, the cold old days, I hate that saying that. <laughs> the old days, you know, you'd have like the, like a, a, a like a bar club, like on the Shanker Road or on the Falls Road, would have like they put a ring up, have like ten amateur fights, and then take the ring down and have a bit of entertainment. Hmm. And that's the way you you fought in like a, a small little like pub hmm. club thing, and the smokes everywhere as well, and everybody's drinking and and having a good time. And then when it was all over, I'd say they took the ring down, entertainment, and they might have give the boxers like a, a cup of tea and some sandwiches or something. Yeah. But that was mixed. I'd say. They come to the Shanga Road, and we go to the Falls Road, and there was never ever any any problems whatsoever at all. And to this day, there's there's never been. And would that you know, mean just... then that you know pe- people from the boxing community wouldn't have been involved in the things that we unfortunately became more famous for in Ireland? You know, w- was boxing a sort of almost a vaccination against getting involved in sectarianism, or was it you know that certain nights it was fine, other nights a lad might be out throwing stones, kind of thing? Well, the throne stone thing is probably like a pastime thing for people. <laughs> you know, every night, um, like I was, I say I was born in the Shangri-La area, and then I moved to Highfield Estate in the suburbs. And there was a like a peace line at Spring Martin, which is right beside Highfield, and then then you had like Bally Murphy, which is the Catholic area, and then you had the fence and the wall separating that. But the kids go up there every night, and, and I don't know if they do it today, but they're, they're throwing rocks at each other for a couple of hours. And it's probably freezing cold outside. Yeah. Probably think they're throwing the himself warm because <laughs> there was no there was no guns or anything you know what i mean there was no guns or stuff like that no or like it was just they were passing the light in and saying i just thought what what's what's the difference between that but i'm outside the fence and this guy outside the fence what's the mm. difference yeah. you know what i mean so i think i think the troubles you know i was born in 1970 and 69 when they erected the they called the peace walls now yeah. but percy street is there. i was born on percy street and my friend Tony, who lives here, he's from Ardoin. He's been in Vegas like 40 years. He's from Ardoin. We're good friends. And he always talks about Percy Street being read into like Falls Road. Mm. But they put the wall down the middle and separated the, the two, the same street. Mm. So, and the Catholics were on one side and then the present put to one side. Working mm. class. And and I always say to people over here, they, they separate the working class people who actually socialize together. But the rich people were never separated. Yeah. So if you were living above in Bangor or that kind of thing, nobody built a wall down the middle of the road. Out of, like, out of, um, like, like 
Coltrow and where where's where Barney Eastwood lived out there? He lived out there. The old like late, the late Barney Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Um, you go up to like Strambellus, which is like a more like a like a university place. Mm-hmm. It was always mixed. There was no walls. The mm-hmm. walls were down to working class neighborhoods. The Falls Road, Chank Road, you know, East Belfast. That's where the walls have put their walls up. So mm-hmm. I don't. So I always say to people, if we hate each other because he's a Catholic or a Protestant, I come to rich people living next door to each other. Exactly. They so, don't seem to have any problems, you know. There's a method. The method of madness is they just they put the blame on the working class people who did socialize together. Yeah. A sort of a you divide know? and conquer. Thing. Do you think the walls did more harm than good, Wayne? Yes, I think because if I'm born, I was born on, say, on Percy Street, and the, the wall was erected probably 100 meters from where I, where I was born. Yeah. The wall, that's actually on the, on, like, on the other side of that is the Falls Road. And if you're a kid, and you're like two years old, three years old, walk, kids are on the street two or three years old. And you, you look, you say to your mum or dad, well, what's, what's that wall for? What, what, what's on the other side of it? Oh, people on the other side of it? Well, why is there a wall up? Oh, they're Catholic. You hate each other. And the same on the other side, there's a Protestant on the other side. You yeah. hate each other. Why do we hate each other? I don't know. We've always done it. You know, we've always it's, it did it from 69. So, that was a normal thing for young kids to say when they started rapping with each other and stuff. The yeah. thing was just a, a thing that, oh, we're supposed to do this. You know, you never say, question I, it or anything. You just go, go along with it. I didn't question it. But where I came from, and I, I say high the state, it was a real paramilitary UVF, UDA. And to this day, I've got friends who are, who are involved in it. Mm. But they always, they always cross divides where they... You know, I would say the area and the UVF were always talking to each other. Yeah. You know, it was always like, you take this part of the city, we'll take this part of the city. <laughs> you know, we'll collect money from them, you collect money from them. And so, so where, where, is the, where is the religious divide down in the ring? That's like, yeah. it doesn't, when you, when you put it in your head, it's hard to make sense, but I understand there's bitter people on both sides. You understand it. And the bitter people is a problem that keeps it going, going, keeps things going, keeps it, just like over here with racism and, and mafia <laughs> yeah yeah oh it's, like, it's like nuclear waste you just you never get rid of it once it gets into a community like you know it's unbelievable when money involved in something people keep it going forever mm. just to keep it going as i, as I said i said the one i think it was a long few years back when the, when the peace started in northern Ireland, i said if there's peace you should take down the wall because they took down the berlin wall exactly, yeah. so if that wall there the kids are going to think What's on the other side? But some tourist guy said to me, "It's, it's, a, it's a good place for, for tourists to come and sign the wall." So it's a tourist trap. But then keep part of the wall, like they did, like the Berlin Wall. When I was in, uh, I was in um, Texas in '94. I just fought in Atlantic City. I was there for the World Cup was taking place, and I I was down in the, the ITV studios with them, and they had a piece of the Berlin Wall in the in the hotel we were at, like outside. Yeah. And I thought, so that people can take down that wall and. And put it around the whole world actually people can say that was part of the peace wall of northern ireland mm. but it's still sta- it's still standing and it's still separating the community yeah so has ha- a real peace when there's if they, they're still separating the working class people yeah you know i think you know with time we, we somehow tend to forget a lot of the things that went on you know in terms of awful things happened on both sides and that but 
you know, you hear this thing recently now of the, the Republic of Ireland, the women's football team singing a wolf tone song in the dressing room and people are getting offended and that kind of thing. And I was saying that that's because they don't have any memory in the way that our generation has a memory of what happened in the 60s, no. the 70s, the 80s. You and I remember, you know, would key holders please return to their premises on the news and that kind of thing. These kids don't know that. Do you think, do you have any hope when you speak to kids in Northern Ireland and maybe your nieces and nephews or when you go home to kids in the Shankill that, that maybe we can get past this eventually? Well, when you start bringing songs up and, and there's a bit of paramilitary stuff in it, you, they got to be taught, don't do that, no mind, don't do that. Mm. It's like, because it, it, it hurts, I say, as you said, people on both sides, innocent people have been blown to pieces. And they, they, they when they hear something like that on whatever side it is, it keeps deep into them and the hatred comes out of you. Mm. So they, they, they smooth that part out. Because Michael Cannon, he, he walked over the ring one time in New York to some, some song and had RA lyrics in it. And he, he took a pounding for it. And then he came out and apologized and top, top ranked Bob Ironman all come out and apologized because whoever played the music didn't know what was going on. Mm. And they just you know, they put it out there and they say the younger generation didn't know what was going on there. But I say they I think bring down bring down the walls. And I always say to people, I don't live over there now. Yeah. But I always when I go home, I always visit. I've, I've, up a sh- I've got good friends in the falls, Shankle. And I always visit. I don't forget where I come from. I don't. I don't say to people, "I'm going to be visiting today," so that I know I'm getting attention for it. Mm. I go and visit people. I go up the Highfield Estate. I go up the Shanker Road. Go up the Falls Road. I visit people. Have coffee with them or something. I don't get any publicity for it because I don't need it. I don't. I'm not visiting because I want to, not because I want to get it in the paper. Yeah. You know. So I think times can change, and and time time heals wounds. You know what I mean, and. Hopefully my generation will do see the will come down, but I think with my daughter's generation, she's 20, 24, four, so. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, we live in hope that that'll be the time when these things are, are sort of in the history books rather than, you know, something we still have to face. Just something that you mentioned there about, about Michael walking out that IRA. So you were always very conscious in your professional career, if I remember rightly. You didn't wear any colours. You didn't go in for any songs or that kind of thing. Did you get a lot of stick when you went to, to was the Seoul Olympics, you were Ireland's flag bearer yeah. at the Olympics? Did, did, did the lads in the Shankill give you a stick then for that? You know, oh, here comes Wayne now waving the tricolor. What's all this about kind of thing? Well, the funny story about that is it's a, I've heard rumblings about my family getting harassed and stuff. There's a lot of lies. Putting yeah. a wink at the British put through and stuff. No, it wasn't like that. They said I was, I was just I was 17, just turned 18. They offered me to carry the flag. And my, Pat McCrory was our team manager at the time. And he said, think about it. And I'm like, what's it to think about, really? I'm, I'm honored to be fighting for Ireland. You get to carry the flag one person every four years. Mm. You know, I said, I'm a, I'm a sportsman, not a politician. That's what I was saying. Of mm. course I'll do it. And I think they were shocked that I did it, actually. I think everybody was shocked that I said yes. But if I'm representing Ireland, if I turn down, turn down that carrying the flag, so I'm spitting on more or less, you know, I'll represent the country, but not carrying the flag. Come on. Yeah. You know, I stood, I stood for the soldier song winning some like Gaelic games and some tournaments, mm. you know, I've no problem with that at all. And I've never had a problem. I stood for Danny Boy when I went to Commonwealth Goldman. So there's, yeah. there's no problem. And I say, when I came back from, from the, the, Olymp- the Olympics in 88, um, if people said I got hassled, but the truth is they had a celebration in Highfield Estate for me. Mm. The Shankill Road flute band walked me down the, down the Shankill Road and I was in a bus 
to the, the Rangers supporters club and had a party for me. That's better people, is it? I just have to carry the flag. They, they got a marching band. They walked me down to the Rangers supporters club and had a, had, a, had a party for me. So there you go. People say, other people said, hey, why did you carry that? And I'm like, because one person gets to carry it every four years and I got to carry it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is. I, I think it's it's probably more difficult even for people on the Shankill because there is that combination of being Irish people and having the British heritage and that. And I think there's more to wrestle with than maybe than what the, on the Republican side might be. But it just goes to show that, you know, if, if a flute band can march you to a Ranger supporters club for what you did yeah. in a green singlet at the elect at the at the Olympics. Yeah. Jesus, there's hope for us all there, Wayne, you know, that's what, that was back in the 80s when the, when the band. Yeah, yeah. Back in the 70s and 80s worse than the 90s I mean it was really bad and yeah. the Shanghai Road flute, the Shanghai Road Defenders Flute Band is the band that walked me down and they're all I'd say some half of them are probably the UVF or something <laughs> <laughs> but as I say I've had friends who are in the UVF and stuff but to this day they you know when I go home they say they talk to me have me chat with me yeah. you know they know they what I'm trying to say is I always thought there was something better I'm proud of where I come from I always stood at the front door and I say I always visit because I love I love work I love Ireland, mm. but I'll never forget where I came from. And as I say, I go back home and I make sure I visit the, the people I'm supposed to visit. Yeah, and and stay with. It's just it's got a lot better. How's it got a lot? Not, like Northern Ireland, Belfast is a type of city that it's it's changed so much in thirty years since I've been. Like I'm yeah. I'm back and back a lot, you know what I mean? But but in thirty years, it's changed so much for the better. You know, the city centre of Belfast were the shops and all that. That was always mixed. So that's what you know, It's hard to understand that through the troubles. President Kelly always shopped together in the city centre. Of course they did. Yeah. There was never any, like hardly any fights in the, like people fighting each other on the, on the downtown. That was mm -hmm. the main, like, hub, like down on Connell Street and down in Dublin. You know, yeah. it's the same thing. It's just when you get the ghosts come out at night time, the dark places, you know, East Belfast, West Belfast, you know, Falls Road, Shanghai Road, Ardoin. Mm. And there was always a little spats where people ratted every night. It was just, as I say, I think the kids had nothing else to do. Because when the over there, when the the when it's dark in the wintertime at three o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. you know, you don't have lights in the parks and stuff to go and play. So the street lights they use to 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 stay on the streets and play football or throw rocks at each other. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pass the time somehow, you know. And that's the thing a lot of kids were doing that because someone were like six and seven years old. Yeah, well, no, I, I, that, that other thing that you mentioned as well is interesting about working class people because I remember being up, oh, Jesus, what year was it? Was it 1991, maybe? I used to go out with a girl from Porto Ferry outside Belfast and I went up to her. I'd finished working just before Christmas, a week before Christmas and I went up to visit with her and our family and that was the thing that, like, you know, we all were always nervous going up over the border and that kind of thing. But the city centre of Belfast and then up around Malone Avenue and that kind of thing, Lavery's Gin Palace used to be a place where people hung out. I'm sure you were there one or two nights yourself, you know. And that was the thing that, you know, these were places where everybody was safe. But where working class people were, maybe they couldn't afford to be out downtown shopping and maybe they, you know, weren't yeah. mixing as much. And then they got all the fucking blame for everything that went on then, you know. What's what I mean? The working class people... I say this, they're separated. They're probably staying in local pubs at, at the weekends where mm. the city centre is more for nightclubs and everybody was mixed mixed together. You have the university and, and the city centre, Belfast. Mm. All the kids that are mixed and they're coming to the city centre and, and, and going to pubs and stuff. So I think just the the small pubs in the Falls Road, Shangri Road were the ones that were just like the, 
that's where the, the paramilitaries were and the, mm. and the, the people just said, we can't go in this, we can't do this, we can't do that. As I say, I did it. I, I carried the flag in 88. I didn't do it. I did it because I was asked to do it and I'm proud of what I did. But, you know, back then it was bad. And most, one of my good friends is, is Eamon McGee. He's from, he's from Ardoin. Mm. Eamon was a great, one of, the, one of Ireland's greatest amateur fighters ever. And um, a great pro as well for Ricky Hatton. But I hung out with them guys. I went down to Dublin with their, with their Sacred Heart um, boxing club. For, and we won, I won the youth tournament with them. So that was back in the 80s as well, no way. Yeah. And there was never any problem at all. No, no problems at all. Early 90s. Well, it's gas so because it's never. At that stage, you had so like boxing was something to unite around, very much in the same way that rugby was. Soccer is obviously split on the island, you know. And I remember when Alan McLaughlin scored above in, in Windsor Park there to take us through that World Cup that you went in 1994, you know. And it just like the boxing thing, I was always fascinated by yourself and Michael and the two years going there to Barcelona and you carrying the flag in 88. And even going back to 82 and 86 uh, and Billy Hamilton and Jerry Armstrong and Pat Jennings and all these guys. I didn't care that well, they were from wherever. No, I didn't it, care it, where they were, you know. Eighty-two to eighty-six, you know, was a great World Cup for Northern Ireland. But I say Brilliant. you're talking about ninety-four, the World Cup. I I fought in Atlantic City on uh, in June, and Adam were playing Italy in their first match up in um, New Jersey, in Giant Stadium. And yeah. I I, the, I went to the match in the limo with Brian McWigan there too. He was at my fight as well, and we were not. I, I my face was a bit busted up. But they went up to, we went up there to watch we watched Ireland beat Italy that day. Fantastic. Ray Houghton scored a great goal against Italy. Yeah. Hey, I've been in Northern Ireland matches too, and I, I support I support both teams. Mm. But if Northern Ireland playing Ireland, I have to support Northern Ireland. <laughs> yeah, but when I was playing Ireland, supporting them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I support both teams that I would have. Because I was at I was there witness Ireland beat Italy. You yeah. know, and Italy went on to the semi-finals. We didn't. <laughs> well, that was the but, thing. Like, I mean, for a few years, it was bad. Well, even even before that, I remember when Northern Ireland beat Spain, like, and everybody was delighted. When we were kids playing football in the lane beside my parents' house, that was the thing, you know, that uh, everybody was pretending to be George Hamilton. There's the ball now. What's that from? I was, they brought me on the pitch when Ireland played Russia in 1992, and they gave me this, presented the sign that gave me this, like, work, like a World Cup thing. <laughs> a lovely crystal World Cup ball. Fantastic. Yeah. They brought me and Michael on the pitch and give it to us. So that's something like that. There is that was that was in Dublin. There you go. It just goes to show there are hands across the border. Listen, if we can get back to the boxing end of things, right? You seem to have, because of your older brothers, you sort of cruised into it, right? Um, you felt always that you belonged. What was it about boxing that appealed to you? Because I remember the first time I ever boxed in my life, I got punched with a straight right in the face, right? I thought, this is not for me, right? It's not, that's how I got this good looking, you know? Um, but I remember <laughs> Steve Collins saying to me years later, he said, if you get punched in the face a lot, you're not going to make it as a boxer. You know, so what was it about the sport that appealed to you? Were you ever afraid when you were in there as a young boy or as a young man? I wasn't in the, you say getting punched in the face, that's, Mike Tyson saying is everybody's a fighter until they get punched up the head. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was, say I just I had my first. I was in the gym about six months before I before I fought. I, I was watching all the the pros train the amateurs and I jump rope a lot. So just watching people, I was I, I was still in my mind. You know, I used to love what read magazines and watching the old fights and stuff. But I didn't just rush into the gym one week and fight the next week. I took my time and then my first fight I remember was in Ballyclare. I fought a kid with like 30 fighters of them. Mm. And I went out there and stopped them in the second round. So I did I was 
I did okay. And then I say I was fighting pretty regular after that and just kept fighting every other week. Back then it was fights all the time. It was a lot of, it's like when you went to the boys club championships and then the country anthems or the Ulsters and you go on the all Islands. you were fighting three or four times just in the one tournament before you got to this one, before you got this one. So you could have 12 fights in a month, you know what I mean? That's how you, busy we're fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to all Islands, we're fighting three fights in three days. And nowadays it's all changed. You get what you're lucky to get one or two fights. But it was just, I was just, I say it was natural to me. Mm-hmm. My first fight, I stopped it one day, and it was, I thought, wow, this is, I'm, I'm better at this. And I still, I was still trying to pursue being a soccer player, but I wasn't, wasn't good enough. And I just mm-hmm. kept on boxing, boxing, won the boys club at 11, boys club at 12, and I won my first. The county and the two years in a row in the county ends, I got raw blind. And I think once you, you lose a county anthem, they couldn't, you couldn't go on to fight in the All-Arms then. So the first year I, I finally got my hand raised in the county anthems, I won the All-Arms. So yeah. I knew I could have run them two years before that. And then juvenile was juvenile right through till I left to come here. I won juvenile youth, um, junior, under 18, and senior titles. So I mean, All-Arms. It's an amazing amateur record, and I can't remember. I know it's over 300 amateur fights that you had. What was it, 334 or something like that, official fights? 319 fights with 11 losses. That's And I had, I I stopped over 100 fighters. I always say to people, my my best record knockout percentage in the amateurs was 12 12 knockouts in a row. God. And that was was actually at international level, because I knocked out, I knocked out that year. I won the seniors. Ulster's and knocked the guy. The Irish and knocked him out. Under 18s, I knocked the guy out. Then I fought a Cuban and knocked him out in Dublin. A Scottish guy knocked him out. Then I fought a Tour of Getty and knocked him out in the first round. I remember and that. I, that whole knockers in a row at that level, at, at the elite level, and that's my best, my best, um, like percentage of knockouts in a row. <laughs> Twelve, <laughs> 12 knockouts. I weighed forty eight kilos. It's incredible because we often think with boxing and, and MMA as well, to a lesser extent, right? That we always say that the smaller fellas, like, as I say, I'm six foot three and 14, 15 stone, you know, we, we have the power, but you little fellas don't. But by God, there was no shortage of power when you were boxing. And my coach, Eddie Fudge, was, was my size. Yeah. And he always says, when you look, in boxing, you look for one shot, you don't get it. You get it. It's like Mike Tyson was smaller, and he was sort of set everything up in combinations. And I was combination after combination. When I started, when I faced one combination, I went back another one, then did another one, then did another one. And I threw, so when he, I threw average over 100 punches per round through the amateurs, through the pros. And it was hard for people to keep up with that pressure. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't all like, it was like easy, 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 then hard bump, 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 bump. So mm-hmm. easy shots and hard shots and easy shots. Then they can't cope with that. And that's why, you know, I had a few, a couple of like one punch knockouts, but most of my knockouts were all accumulation. Just non-stop, non-stop, non-stop pressure, and they couldn't take people. People couldn't cope with that pressure. What makes a great boxer, Wayne? A great boxer is somebody who actually is willing to do the the foundation work. You know, I was talking about Muhammad Ali. I've got a picture in the garage. I've got my gym in the garage. Um, Ali was always out running, and I, I try to say to these kids today, you know, modern day. You know, I, I was trained, I was in shape. But Floyd Mayweather, he lives in Vegas. Mm. He's probably the greatest fighter of this era and probably the best defensive fighter of all time. He's always training. He's always, he wasn't out partying, drinking, doing this. Ali wasn't doing that. I wasn't doing that. And these kids are like, oh, 
I don't want to train today. I want to go to the club. I don't want to do this. I said, you have to sacrifice that period of your life mm. if you want to make it because you might have talent, but you need somebody to bring the talent out. You need to work hard to get to the top. And I've seen so many people fall to the wayside because they didn't want to do the hard work. They just wanted, they want, they seen what this guy has up here, but they didn't realize how he got there. Mm. And I try to, I tell my fighters, you got you got to do the rule work every day. You got to do your gym work every day. You got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And most of them listen to you, but some don't. <laughs> and the ones who don't, the ones who don't fall, they fall to the wayside. They're really good. They don't, they don't make it. Yeah. And the ones who do, they're not saying, I'm not saying every fighter is going to win a win world championship, mm. but you could, you could make a better life for yourself and maybe um, make enough money to secure your future in a way. And that's all you want to do. If you if you box for so long, you want to at least make enough money to to be comfortable enough. You know what yeah. I mean? Not cool. but, but I often think fighters. of yeah, no, I often think of the experiences that you had carrying the flag at the Olympics, fighting for a world title, winning a silver medal, and and standing on the podium at the Olympics. All the great the great nights that you've had in Las Vegas, New York, and in Atlantic City, and in Belfast, and that kind of like that in itself. Okay, hopefully you have some of the money left from that, but you'll always have those memories that you can share with your friends and your family. You'll always have the respect of people like me and people on the Falls Road and the Shankill Road and in Dublin and in Cork and that kind of thing. That's worth it as well. That's a sort of a reward for, for all that time and effort you put in. Do you see less of that now? Because, you know, we always do this in boxing. We always look back and go, oh, kids today, Jays, they don't have it at all. Or do you still get these hungry kids coming to Vegas and saying, Wayne McCulloch, train me. I want to be like you. No, I've got a few Irish fighters. I wish I wish more Irish fighters would come here, but I think the problem is they don't want to leave home. Back in the day, everybody wanted to leave home. <laughs> they come to the States. But, yeah, they want to get out of here. Let's get out of here. But no, I think um, the kids today, as I always say to people today, you know, I'm 52 years old, so the Olympics was 30 years ago. And I say to people in their 30s, 40s and older are going to know who I am. But I say the ones in their 20s and, and things are going to happen to learn from their dad who I was mm. and if they're a boxing fan you'll always know who, who somebody is because it's a lot easier today with um on internet wikipedia everything you can find out who people are back in our day it's like you didn't have a cell phone <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> so they have their whole life on a cell phone but as I say a lot of kids who have no kids in their 20s who are like pro fighters some amateur fighters like 18 19 and they know who I am mm. because they know boxing mm. and if we don't have that many world champions come from Ireland at all, don't we? No. So it's if we had thousands of world champions, then the kids wouldn't know half of them. Mm. But we get world champions every ten years or so, don't we? Mm. And so that's it. The, the the younger generation can. I would I would love I would really really love. I've got American fighters, I've got Hispanic fighters, I've got all different races of fighters, and. I would love to, I've always said I'd love to have a whole stable of Irish fighters, really would. You know, and with the knowledge I got from Eddie Fudge, you know, the stuff he taught me, it's, it, I swear, it was like going to, it was like going to, to the college for four years, it really was. He just, it's not just about boxing, about life and about being smart with this and doing this and doing that. He taught me a lot. We spent a lot of time together, me and Eddie, when you went to fights like in different states, different countries, you're there for like a week or something, so you're, you're eating breakfast and dinner together and, and training together. So you sit down, Eddie would sit down for like two hours at a meeting and I'd be listening to him like this just the whole time, just like thinking, I'm just sitting there thinking, he's my coach, he's my coach. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's an education. Stories, 
Yeah, he told the stories he told me about training fighters at the beginning. He didn't have anybody, and then all of a sudden he gets that one fighter who's successful, and then everybody started coming to him. That's like it's almost like social media. Mm-hmm. When you're popular, everybody wants to go to you. And yeah. about social media, once he had that one one champion, they all came. He sort of went viral. Yeah, went viral. That's what's like went viral without no social media day. You do one thing and boom. But he was grounded, you know what I mean? With that, with that, with his, with him going viral. Then he stayed grounded till the yeah. day he passed away. He was the most humble person who didn't care about money. He cared about the fighter. Mm. And the first, he did a little documentary thing before, and he said the first thing he wanted to do with the fighter was become the fighter's friend because mm. if I'm somebody's friend, I do the best thing for my friend. And I thought that was like wow. Mm. If every trainer thought, if every trainer thought like him, be a better sport. But most fighter, most trainers. They'll train anybody just for that paycheck. Yeah. And and the problem is today, a lot of a lot of these fighters today, you know, big name. They, I think like the like Tyson Fury. No, I, I like Tyson Fury. His mom was 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 born in Belfast, Gypsy. <laughs> but I've talked to him and stuff. But I think they're calling the shots, and the trainers tell as they're telling the trainer what they're doing instead of the opposite. Yeah. And Anthony Joshua, you know, I would love to train him. He's out in America looking for a new coach. But I I said to my wife, I said. They're looking for coach. It used to be the coach picked demons, but now yeah. they're picking the coach. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like the like I'm a Liverpool fan. You know, it's like it's like Klopp. He picks he picks his team. They're not picking him. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the way. Boxing used to be. You pick the fire. Eddie picked me. Yeah. I didn't pick Eddie. He picked me. But these guys today, I say Joshua was out here. I think he got a coach in Texas from. But they're they're picking the coach. I'm like. It should be up to the coach to say, I'll train you. You yeah. have to do what you're told. But that's what they don't want to, a lot of these guys don't want to do what they're told anymore. They want to tell you what to do. This is the thing. I saw, saw when, when Conor McGregor was on his rise through the UFC and John Kavanaugh and himself and Owen Roddy had this really good thing going and they had a really good dynamic, but Kavanaugh was the boss. He decided the game plan. He decided when they were training, etc. And then Conor got to a level where he was earning so much money that he started calling the shots. And he said at one of his fights, I can't remember which one it was, that he was sort of his own coach and that John and Owen were just there to help. And his results then all of a sudden didn't work because... I think it doesn't matter how good you are. If you're Mike Tyson or if you're Muhammad Ali, or if you're Wayne McCulloch, if you're Kelly Harrington, you need somebody in your corner that you respect and that you listen to. And that when they tell you to do so, you do it. And that doesn't matter if it's getting up at six in the morning doing your road work. Without that, if you're left to be your own boss in boxing, Wayne, it doesn't seem to be a great recipe for success to me. No, no. You see, you can have all the talent in the world. That would get you so far. Mm. You know, with, you know, kind of, I know Connor. I went to when Connor beat Poirier the first time, it was like 2014, 2015. Yeah. I was at his fight, I went to backstage and stuff. And, um, you know, I've reached out to him on numerous occasions before he fought Floyd Mayweather. Yeah. I've, I've sparred with Floyd. But I said, Come to me and I'll teach you boxing, real boxing. Mm. But I, John's a good guy, I understand it. But the other team around him, I said, He's been with him from day one. I had an amateur coach for 14 years. And then for me to come to Eddie Fudge, he had to let me go yeah. to come to Eddie because Eddie was different, a different level. Yeah. And he's at, and Connor, if Connor does make a comeback, I would love to train him still, but he's not going to come here because I'm going to tell him what to do. Yeah. And if you tell the coach what to do, you know, you're calling the shots to say, and then you're not going to learn anything because you're, 
you're doing what you want to do. You're getting, oh, I don't want to run tomorrow, tomorrow morning. It's too cold. Yeah. You know, you want to, you want me to say to you, do this, do this, do this. And I always did that. I always did more. And he said, do this, I would do more. And I, he'd like, he had to slow me down. So I think Conor McGregor, you know, he's doing more of these exhibition things than making money. I don't, don't blame him for that. But if he really wants to fight again, like for real, he needs to come here. And, yeah. I, and, I'm, and that's a serious, not, and that's saying I want to train Conor McGregor. For, I can help him. I can't help him. Yeah. He can't get better, but he hadn't, when, when he beat Poirier, and then Poirier beat him two, the other two times, yeah. Poirier got better than one. Conor stayed here. Yeah. And you just said at the start, have people around him where, where he was telling him what to do. Yeah. You know? This is, this is the thing. You were involved in the UFC back in the day, um, because you know, back about two was it 2007, 2008? There, you were involved a little bit and on the sort of 2007, 2012. Dana, I was at a fight and actually the 2006. My brother in law was over here, Ian, and he loves UFC. So I just thought, oh, Mark Rattler, who works for the UFC, used to be a boxing commissioner, and he got me tickets to the fight, great tickets, of course. and and I've known Dana White. Dana was at my after party in back in the nineties when when I was world champion. So I've known him, I've known him back then. Yeah. And at that fight, I I seen him walking past about I was about four rows off the floor, great seats, and and Dana's walking past. I he just spotted me. I waved to him. I said, "Just thanks for the tickets, more or less." He yeah. walked straight towards me, and a bunch of in the middle of the fights, and and everybody's looking at me as if what's going on. And Dana's like, "We want you to be part of the UFC. Are you in or not? Are you in or not?" We want you to part of your scene. And I'm like, thanks for the tickets. And I said, are you in or not? And my brother-in-law was looking at me saying, I didn't know him. I said, I've known him for a long time. So I, I started working for the EST 2007. And they wanted to get the boxing media to come across. Because the boxing media wouldn't even look at it. And back then, back then you go to a fight, there was like two media guys. You know, they couldn't get the media just to cross over. Yeah. And and then I went, I went to Dublin. I think it was... 2009, the first flat fight they had in Dublin. I went over with him, went to England with him. I got um, Jerry Callum, who works, who writes the food papers back home in Dublin. Yep. He wasn't going to go, and he's my good friend. And I, I, I didn't force him. I just said, come to the fight. Come to the fight. And he went to the fight, did a two-page spread the next day for the UFC, yep. and says, this is unbelievable. I'm like, it's the future. Yeah. And people, I got ripped. I went on a pod, like a radio interview with some some boxing people, and, and they tore me to pieces. Even my old, like Brian McGuigan did as well. And um, um, yeah. a guy, the guy's name from Dublin, he ripped. They went on the radio. They ripped me to pieces. How can you watch that garbage? How can you do this? How can you do that? I said because if there's a street, there's a if there's a if you stand the street and fight, I'm gonna watch that fight. I don't care if it's a boxing fight, a kick fight. I'm gonna watch it. And I love the EFC. I went to my first EFC fight in like 2003 or four. Mm. Chuck the Dale Ortiz won. And I loved it. And I just, the boxing people, they sort of destroyed me. I've, I've sort of been blacklisted from boxing to this day, actually. Happy, I yeah. Commentating jobs, a lot of commentating jobs. And I can't even get anything anymore. And I'm worried because it, I'm not with the same one. I was with them five years. But I still talk to Dana. And um, I just... I love both sports. It's like I said, like Northern Ireland, Ireland. Yeah. You, you follow both teams. You know, boxing, and MMA. I've, I've always liked MMA and, and boxing. And I always said, had to be in a small weight class when I when I was up and coming. The lightest weight class I had when I was up and coming was in the middle was one fifty five pounds, which is like a light and stone or something. Yeah. 
they're, they're down to like nine stone to live scraper and I but I fought an eight and a half stone. Yeah. So they didn't have my weight class. Had the nine stone weight class been around, I would have took part in the UFC. I would have definitely. You would have gone for it, but would I, you? Yeah, I would have. I do jujitsu and stuff like that. I don't know how to control somebody without even hitting them, which is a good thing because you want sometimes you want to punch somebody. But I can lock them up and get them in the headlock or break, I get their arm and break their arm with them. Yeah. Without any big guys, some big like James Tony, when James Tony, former world champion, he he fought he fought Randy Gatur in a in a fight. He thought he could walk into into MMA and UFC and, and beat Randy. Randy's the old school legend. Randy had him in the canvas in about a minute. Yeah. And I told James to come to me, come to me and I'll teach you real boxing. We of course he knew. Boxing, I see a boxing for MMA is different. Your feet, your stance is different. It is different. So his big, big bodyguard here, I know he's like six foot four of them. We were in the hotel up in Boston and, and he comes charging toward me and he came like that and I went, bump, bump, put my foot behind his, his back foot. And I said, I pushed him over. Just I grabbed him over. before he pulled the grip. I grabbed him and I said, I can do that, no problem. He looked at me like, how do you know that? I said, because I worked for the UFC. I studied it. Yeah. I said, I could have helped James. could help James, but he didn't want to know. I say he was like Conor McGregor. I can just do this. <laughs> yeah. And did you a train? Great guy. The, great people. Did What's you that? train in the gi and that kind of thing over there in Las Vegas? Did you sort of go through the belts and all that crap? Yeah. No, I think it's the belts. So I don't. I don't want. I want people to know I do it. Yeah. Because if they know what I do it, then if you ever do get in the fight, then I know you're going to try that. <laughs> so you you kept I, it to yourself I, until now. No, when I see Dana give me, he give me the book, this much DVDs. Yeah. I had to watch everything, how to do this, watch fights. Mm. Tried, I had to learn all the moves because I didn't really know all the moves, the arm bars, guillotine chokes, you know, you know, Kimuras, like ba- everything. Control, I had to yeah. Everything I had to learn. Um, I could do them all. Yeah. And they're so easy to do. But even, you know what I mean? All you got to do is use somebody's body weight to move them around. Yeah. And why they, because all, you know, you get your perfect stance, somebody... Big guy come towards like some street fights. They give me everything. I'm gonna be yeah. selling it. this bomb, bomb. No, so it's easier, and it's a lot easier because you don't have to hit somebody. Yeah, you wouldn't be a fan of hitting people anymore then. Oh, no, you can hit. You can hold it. You can hold it. Imagine me grabbing a guy six feet six. He attacks me. I've got him in a headlock, and the cops come. The yeah. cops are gonna laugh their head off right now if I'm locking this guy with a headlock. Or you just try to attack me. I've got his head. He's gonna fall asleep. <laughs> And you're five foot seven, and he's six foot six, or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's what I mean. You mentioned no, there, briefly... yeah. Go ahead, no, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to ask you about uh, the difference. Francis Ngannou has recently left the UFC, right? And there's talk of him boxing Tyson Fury. We saw Conor boxing against Floyd Mayweather. That you mentioned there, you're shaking your head even as I'm asking the question, right? You mentioned that there's a big difference between MMA boxing. And, and regular boxing, the kind of boxing that you were a world champion at. Could you just explain for the uninitiated, I was going to say how bad MMA boxers are in comparison to proper pros like yourself, but you can't really expect them to be that great either, can you? No, it's a Junior DeSantos, the former champion, he was like heavyweight champion. He, he was a former boxer and he was pretty good, mm. still on his feet, and it was good for MMA. Yeah. But he was probably one of the best boxers and. You know, Frank Yeager did a little bit of boxing as well. He was a, a, a lightweight champion. But Francis Nagano, whatever his last name, I would get in the ring with him. I guarantee if I get in the ring with him, he, he tried to catch me in the shell. I'd have about 100 punches on him before he landed one. Yeah. And I've got a number of big heavyweights and novice guys or, or even UFC guys. It's different. I'm, I'm a professional boxer. They're professional MMA. 
Mm. It's like me going into their sport without learning MMA. Mm. They're going to light me up like a light bulb. But they yeah. come to boxing, and France is a good, like a great fire. He's massive. Yeah. But he could close his eyes. You know what I mean? Mm. And I'm not disrespecting him. I know he's a, like a hell of a, a UFC fighter, but, but Fury could put one arm behind his back and beat him one hand. This is, oh, yeah, let's not be that exactly when it's like it's actually disrespectful the other way around i find every time i hear one of these i, I was talking or ingana was on the mma hour and he was saying oh yeah i could box against tyson fury and the following day i think i was talking to otto valin who fought against tyson fury in 2019 and opened that big cut over his eye and took him the distance of that and I was into Otto the, the following day. I was going, what would happen if those two got in there? And he was going, look, you know, we've seen these guys. There's nothing. There's, they, there's, they've no chance whatsoever, you know? So it's almost disrespectful for them to say, look, put me in there for a payday when they haven't paid their dues the way many proper professional boxers have, you know? Oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I have no problem with, with guys getting the, getting the payday. And I kind of when he fought Floyd, like Floyd used that as a real fight to beat Brock. Actually, I've got Rocky Marshall on his top one today. Rocky Marshall. Look at that one there. It's lovely. Oh, you get to beat Rocky Marshall. That should that shouldn't have counted as a real fight to get to 50 and 0. It shouldn't have been. But but it did. Because it was like, you know, Floyd only used one hand. He, he, I know he's he, for a fact he hurt, he hurt his left hand. He was just throwing right hand like this, bump, bump, bump. Yeah. And kind of let, let that uppercut. Floyd looked at him and was like, that wasn't supposed to happen. But it was a real fight and it was simple. Yeah, and say kind of wasn't willing to learn boxing. He just thought he could win there as an MMA fighter. Mm. What's different, you know, mm. if you go from MMA to boxing, you got to learn boxing. You go mm. from boxing to MMA, you got to learn MMA, and put them all together. Mm. Just come. Oh, I can walk in. I'm a greedy UFC fighter. I'll just, I'll just punch him. Well, we practice punching only. Yeah, we target practice body shots, head shots, lead. You're doing about five or six different disciplines. Yeah, you know, so they're not focused on good thing. They may be better one thing. But we're just pinpoint on boxing, you know I mean? mm. and these are lethal weapons. Mm. You know I mean? the, the distance is also completely different. When you add kicks in and that kind of thing, boxing distance is what it yeah. is. And you know, you have to be able to get in and out of that distance and protect yourself. And I remember I was yeah. at that fight between Connor and Floyd, and it, it, I think it was the ninth round when Connor caught him, and then Floyd just went, Right, I've had enough. I'm not playing with my food anymore. That's and I think that's what it was. It was just like I've, like I'm done with this. Bum, 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 bum. And I, I train, I say I've trained UFC fighters. I've got a kickboxer guy I trained him, and he's six foot four. Yeah. He just signed up with the fighters league, so he's ready to fight in the like the equivalent of the UFC. Yeah. But I would say the stance is different because you can't give your, if you're an orthodox fighter, you can't give your left leg. It's got to be set, set back a little bit so that yeah. when they come in, when they try to grab you, push your head down, get them out of the way. And I say, I know how to do that. But I say with Connor, Connor, Connor didn't evolve, he just did the same. Whole way along, and he got two belts mm. and didn't defend them. Mm. But he got two belts, got his whiskey, and became civilized. <laughs> he, he told me when I met him in Dublin uh, just after that, when he had that notorious dog documentary that came out, I went to interview him in Dublin. He told me he made $140 million out of that fight. So it didn't go too bad, even if it didn't look great in the ring there, you know? Um, you know, all these Instagram people and, you know, Jake Paul, Logan Paul, and stuff, you know, you want to get in trap, go ahead and do it. But Floyd, Floyd already did it with the Paul, the Paul brothers, and they're massive. They're big guys. They are big. Yeah. But yeah. Floyd's my size, and and it was like easy for him. You know what I mean? Simple. He's like bump, 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 bump. Simple. The size doesn't win fights. You know what I mean? Oh, it's it's down to scale and footwork and this kind of thing. You know. 
that was another money thing as well, just more or less for 100 million each or whatever. It's like, not, they're not real. The Paul brothers, Jake Paul is, is doing boxing. He's going to fight Fury's, Fury's brother and stuff. And this yeah. is the third time it's scheduled. But I, I don't think I talked to Gary and Jim down here, but you need to learn real boxing. You need to learn to spar real pros, not pick to choose somebody who's that or fight guys who are not real fighters. Then you're real boxing. Does it annoy you, Wayne, after all the years you put into the sport, right, on the Shankill Road, up through 319 amateur fights, over 100 knockouts, Olympic competition, international fights, professional fights, being banned for a brain cyst in 2000 and having to fight with the British Boxing Board of Control, all those things that we'll never get around to talking to because otherwise we'd be here all night. And then these guys are coming in and they're making 10 million, 20 million, 50 million just because they're big on YouTube and they couldn't really box their way out of their paper bag. Do, do you resent that? Does that annoy you or do you think ah fair play to them at least people are watching no i don't I, you know i've no problem like fighters doing exhibition matches <laughs> exhibition mike tyson Roy jones did an exhibition <laughs> my dog pardon exhibitions and um i would do an exhibition match if any like i'd do one with Conor if you want to do one i really would nobody wins an exhibition match it's just for the fans but if you think you're a real fighter when you're not then it's different but i've, I've been to the Paul brothers, when we're a fight, actually, I think Billy Joe Sanders was actually, it was in LA, I think it was, he, well, he was actually on the car, but he was down the car, mm. and he was the world champion. <laughs> but you know what, I have no problems, because they brought in more of a fan, more fans, like social media people who were all there, because it was all these Instagram people, my daughter is an influencer, she's not a, like, like Damon's, which is, she, she, I was like, why not, I was texting, I said, who is this person? Who is this person? Oh, it's such and such. Oh, it's such and such. And they're all around about. And the, the fan base they brought to the boxing was was bigger. Mm. But if they stay there, it's fine. If they're going to, if, unless maybe a, if Jake Paul's on the card or something like that, are they going to go to fight? If they're not there, are they going to go to a boxing fight? Maybe they're not. Mm. But it did bring more people to watch boxing. That maybe some of them kids will think, oh, I like watching this real boxing movie. So mm. I'm not, I don't resent anything. It's like somebody's. Well, to make money some other way, go ahead and do it. So, I mean, so, so I'll do an exhibition, no problem with people. Just give me some money, I'll do it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Be happy. Give me 10 million, I'll turn up and I'll box you. So, I'm still in shape. That's the problem. Everybody looks at me and says, You're still in shape. I'm like, Well, I'm an athlete. I'm always going to be in shape. I'm not okay. going to be one of these guys who goes away from and ends up this side and, and then start drinking heavy and, and, and you're dead. You're dead. Do you get a lot of those kids knocking on the door to your gym now or, or looking you, you up on social media and saying, okay, I've seen Jay Paul box, I want to be a boxer too. Is it having that effect on, on kids, you know, that maybe your daughter's age or younger? I think the, the, the new the boxers coming through now when they see the, the Paul brothers boxing and they're getting $20 million for their pro debut, mm. they think they can do that. I always say, Muhammad Ali's in my garage on the wall. I said, that guy never made $20 million for pro debut. Yeah. He probably made a thousand dollars on what he made back, back in the day. He was Olympic champion, of course, light heavyweight. Mm. But he didn't make $20 million. He didn't make a million dollars for his pro debut. So it's not, so the people shout, that's not real. It's not a real, like, you can't start off and get $20 million for your pro debut. Jake, the Paul brothers get that because, they're, because they've got 20 million followers. Mm. And that's where they get the money from. That's why they can get that fan base and get more money. Mm. But young kids then come in the box and think, oh, I want 20 million or at least five million, at least five, give me five at least. Mm. If you're a pro debut, you have been, what's your amateur background? 
Never fought, never fought more. Okay, well, I fought, as I always say to people, I fought 300 and some fights. And they go like that, like, what? I said I fought in two Olympics. So like, boom, their eyes go bigger and bigger. I said, you have to, you have, to have a, an apprenticeship first. And then, let's say, if you're misled by these, these, these like social media people, then you're wrong. I mean, you can't, you can't listen to that because you got to do, you want to be a real boxer, you got to start at the bottom. Are, are they willing to learn that lesson when? Because like more or less like yourself, a few years ago when I started to cover the UFC, I started doing jiu-jitsu for the fun of it and just became addicted, right? So if boxing wasn't my thing because I got smacked in the face, jiu-jitsu certainly was because an old slow fella like me, it's like it suits me down to the ground because I'm big enough as well, you know? Uh, but are they, like I, I just, the moment I walked into the gym, that was me. Boxing wasn't my thing, that was me. But do these kids come in then and would you explain all this to them? Do you see the fire light in their eyes or do they just turn on their heel and go? No, a lot of my young guys in here have got a, got a bit of weight kid. He's young, and um, he had his pro debut. One, I've got another kid who's twenty-one. He's he, he's three and zero, and um, he's only a light flyweight. But they train hard. I, I I make them train hard, and I, I put it in their mind that you have to train hard. And they, I say, I've got my pictures in the wall out there, like different fights and Olympic for me, Olympics right to the World Championship, and that's to motivate them to see you can get from here to here, and. I didn't want to put my pictures up in the wall. My my wife's like, but you're Jim, put them up. I'm like, I don't want to be like um, like shown off. She's like, you're not showing off, you did it. You're doing the kids can look at that and say, I want to be like that. They see you see somebody like that who made it and they worked hard, then they can do that too. And I say it does motivate them. And so far, 99% of the fighters I've had are working hard. I've actually cut a few guys off and told them that I'm done with them. Hmm. They didn't want to work hard. <laughs> So I just cut them off. I mean, that's the way. If they're not going to put the effort in, there's no point in you getting up early in the morning. Again, going back to John Cavanaugh, I think he said he doesn't chase fighters. If they don't show up in the gym, that's you know that, that's the only thing they have to do is show up in the gym. You know, that's right. You got you can you can't chase after them. You know, you tell them to do one thing, they don't do it. You tell them well, the next day do it, don't do it. They do it the, the third day. You tell them to do it, they don't do it. Then you're done. There's the door. You yeah. give them a couple of chances. Give them a few chances to do it. Say, give me five rounds in a heavy bag today. Give me two rounds in the jump rope, and they might do one or two. The next day they might do three or four, mm. and the next day they might do five. Then then they get a routine where like they'll do more, mm. and you don't you don't. That's why you don't push. Say, oh, I told you yesterday to do this. You didn't do it. I don't do that. Mm. I tell them to do it, and then I watch to see if they're going to do it. Mm. And then all of a sudden they're starting to do more. And then instead of doing hundred push ups, they're doing two hundred push ups, fifty mm. sit ups, they're doing hundred sit ups. So if you if you get on their back every day. Say, I told you to do that. You didn't do it. You won't do it. Yeah. Just give me a leash. Do it. It kind of has to come from yourself, though. You know, Eddie Futch or, or you know, uh, Barney Eastwood, nobody can drag this out of you. If it's not in you, nobody can drag it out of you. And you have to be the one, you know, nobody can go in there and do those rounds for you. As soon as you step through those ropes or step yeah. into that cage, you're on your own in there, you know? It's, there's none of this, oh, I told you to do this or that kind of thing. It's, it's up to them to do it, you know? And, well, in my wall, on the garage is a picture of Eddie Fudge on the wall. And it's just a, just a, just a regular pose. He's just looking. And I will say to people, that guy's watching over this gym. I know he is. And mm. this guy was, I believe, the greatest trainer ever lived. Mm. And then um, he trained me. I said, you just gotta, you got to do what I tell you to do. Mm. Otherwise, there's no point in, in trying it. Because you, you have to don't do what you're told. There's no point in trying boxes. Do you feel like sort of a conduit for Eddie now when you're coaching fighters do you find yourself saying things that he said to you 
28 years ago or 29 years ago? Do you find yourself going, oh, Jesus, that's what I've become kind of thing? I do, because Eddie, I say, Eddie always said, every fighter is different. You know, you don't train somebody, everybody the same way. You make an aggressive fighter, a defensive fighter, you know, somebody's good with footwork. And all the, say, Mike McCollum, Riddick Bow, Montel Griffin, who was part of our team, we were all different. Mm. And I see that, but I see a lot of trainers who make the mistake of training everybody the exact same way. And they all, you know, exactly, oh, he's from that, he's from that club. You know, they all fight the same way. Mm. And all my guys fight different. They don't fight like me. If somebody comes in and fights me someday, maybe I'll work. Mm. But we've only seen one Mike Tyson. We've only seen one Floyd Mayweather. We've only seen one um, Muhammad Ali. They've only seen one Wayne McCulloch. So they maybe not another one. So everybody's so different. And say, mistake number one is to train anybody as a fighter. If I train anybody like me, then I make a mistake. Hmm. You know, it's interesting that and because I was different. doing thing. I was doing the thing for beginners last week, and there was this fellow who's very stiff in the hips and jujitsu. You know, and I was going, okay, you're gonna your game. You've only just started, but your game is gonna be like this. It's not my game at all. This is not what I do. But he's gonna throw it out like that just because that's. And now I have to go and find out if I'm gonna teach him to do this or help him to do this. I'm gonna have to go and find out about it because I don't know about it. Could I just ask you? And again, thanks so much for your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, he's talking about jujitsu. Boxing and jujitsu are similar. You yeah. have to be relaxed. Yeah. The more relaxed you are in jujitsu, when you're leaning on somebody with a body weight, if you're if you're tense, they'll just push you off, kick you off. Yeah. You can be on top of somebody in and jujitsu and control them still. Mm. But if you're stiff, they'll just kick you off in two seconds. Just boxing the same it. way, you gotta be just like relaxed shoulder. And then you punch, you gotta be relaxed in the front and get knockouts. Mm. But if you're stiff like this, then it's it's a pretty they're pretty much every sport's pretty much similar in a way. Yeah, I think it was Bruce Lee relaxed. who was saying, be like water. You know, that, that thing of oh, flowing cool. flowing into things and that, you know. Um, what's life like in Nevada? You've obviously enjoyed it if you stayed there for 30 years rather than go back to the Shankill Road. Well, I, I, when I first came here, my wife, she was 19. We weren't even married. We were engaged. And um, I said to her, I've got a three-year contract. I've got three years. I'm staying for three years. And then I went back to Belfast. Came here. I was homesick every week. I hated I hated Vegas. I really hated it. I didn't, we didn't know anybody. You know, we didn't know nobody. And then after about a year and a half, two years, I bumped into a guy called Romulo Fusco. who was from the, from our dawn. His sons are still alive. He was an older guy, like former boxer. And I bumped into him in the gym. He used to have fish and ship restaurants back home. And he, he lived around the corner from me in Vegas. Mm. So that made our, our stay a little bit more like easier. Yeah. And he used to cook fish and chip every week for us. Um, he passed away. His two sons are like in their 60s right now. And they were, they've been my great friends ever since, since 1984. Okay. So it made our stay a lot better. But after about three years, and you know, we got bought our first home and we sort of settled down. My daughter wasn't born until 1998. But in 2002, we just went back to Belfast. We said we'd move back. I didn't give up my home here, which is a thank goodness. But I went back for three months. I had two fights scheduled, but I went back for three months. And I, I went a bit of house hunting and stuff. And I put offers in a couple of homes. And then people find out who it was. And then they asked for more money and stuff to get usual stuff. <laughs> but the offers, I just thought, I said to Cheryl, I said my wife, I said, I don't think I can live over anywhere. We looked at schools for my daughter and everything. Mm. And we just thought, our life's been in America the last 10 years, I think. And we came here when we were young, so uh, we came here older than it would have been a lot easier to come back home. But 
it's just for us here and, and say hey, we've got a lot of good friends here, American friends, Irish friends. Um, and it was we couldn't do it. We went back for we went back for three months. And after six weeks, we were like more or less, I think we're done here. Yeah. And I'm proud of where I'm from and stuff, but it just Irish people are are known to leave Ireland. <laughs> and that's why that's why that's why America has over 30 million of Irish descent somewhere, like yeah. generations down the line. Over 30 million. And I always say to people are like six million they are in Ireland alone. I say, but think when Irish people go somewhere, they they populate pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> this is it. Well, I mean, yeah. when I started doing this podcast, it's called the Global Gale for a reason. There's 70 million people around the world of Irish heritage. And they all come from that little corner of the world where you and me come from, you know. And like you say, since the famine, I think it's still the only country, one of the only countries in the world that has less people now, or certainly the only country in Europe that has less people now than it did at the time of the famine, you know. So we have that tendency to go away. Do you have a lot of contact with Irish people in, in Las Vegas? Yeah, I've got Frank Frank Fusco, Tony Fusco, Romulo, the dad, he's passed away now. Yeah. But they're in their 60s. Frank's nearly he's 67 though. Frank's, I will tell everybody, Frank's my dad. <laughs> he, he talks like me and he's got, you know, our accent changed a little bit, but but I would say that's my dad. And he was like, hello, Mr. Pickle, hello, Mr. Pickle. And they all, they all, well, we always mess about with us. And I always say to people, he's not my dad. I say, he looks like you as well. He looks like you and he talks like you. I'm like, yep, he does. <laughs> so I was call, I call him my pops. So I do. And um, I say, I've got good Irish friends in California. And... Let's say Frank and Tony are from Ardoin originally. And the ones, Tim Malloy, Frankie Malloy, and Jim Malloy mm. are all from the Falls Road originally. Yeah. One of my good friends from California. So I've got good friends around the country and I've got some good friends in New York and stuff. Like John Duddy, former, he used to fight John Duddy. He fought, he's, in, he's based in New York, I suppose. Mm. So no, you've got, you got to reach out to the Irish people and say, I've got great American friends here I've known for, for like the last 30 years mm. as well. And um, there's good Americans too, knowing good people. I said, like anywhere, there's good Irish people, there's bad Irish people. There's good American people and bad Irish people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know I mean? Where do you live in Las Vegas? Do you live out towards Henderson or do you live down by the Strip? Are you on the Strip in the casinos every night of the week, are you? No, the, when I first came here, we lived a block from Caesar Palace. Yeah. Like one block's about one block's about half a mile. But we lived in beautiful apartments, and beautiful apartments from closing and luxury, and I'm, I came from the high feed to stay together. So it was, it was comfortable for me, training hard and stuff, but then we sort of bought our first home as far away from the strip as possible. Yeah. And then where that home is, I've moved a, I've moved a few times, but I'm up, where I am now, I'm sort of like close to the mountains, and we're only about eight miles of the strip, so it's pretty close, but where I am, that's like mountains and deserts and um, golf courses and stuff like that. And, yeah. and they've got my, my gym, my garage is... It's about forty-five feet by twenty feet, so that's my that's a chief food bringing stuff in there and everything I need. And I say the strip when you live in Vegas, you don't really need when you do the strip. Yeah. You only go there, bite on or going to a concert or something. Because Freddie Saturday and Sunday night is you go to the strip. If you drive down the strip, it's about a four or five mile stretch. It'll probably be taking about two hours. Yeah. The traffic's just bumper to bumper, yeah. and the like the sidewalks and stuff, people everywhere, the hotels. There's so many hotel rooms in Vegas, like, and they're all filled. They get all filled. And then they built a big new stadium here, the Legion Stadium for the Raiders. Yeah. It's whole 70, holds about 70,000 fans. Yeah. That's just, you walk up my street here, the next corner, and you, and you can actually see it from a distance, which is right beside the strip. It's about eight miles away, and you can see the roof of it. 
Sure. The Vegas is a valley, the strip here, and then it goes up like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we're up, I'm up, I'm up about, Vegas is about 2,000 feet above altitude, mm-hmm. where I am it's about 3,000 feet above altitude. So it's good for your training as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Altitude. So uh, is this it now? Are you a Las Vegas resident for life now, do you think? It's not just gambling. People think Vegas is just, you know, people say, well, how can you live there? And the ones who say, how do you live there? Or once you come to Vegas City year and gamble. Yeah. I'm like, I live in Vegas for shows. You know, the suburbs have restaurants, like um, movie theaters, you know, parks, schools, churches. There's more churches in Vegas than there is per capita in any state in the country. So there's normal life. We go to a good church here. You know, it's it's normal life out yeah. in the suburbs. Go to the strip. You know, three or four days in the strip is enough for you, I think. Yeah. You know. But it's beautiful. Like you've got beautiful hotels and beautiful casinos. They're beautiful. Like top, they're top class. So, you know, I never say never. But if you if you just said to me thirty years ago about me coming to Vegas and live for the rest of my life, I would say never, <laughs> never. I hadn't even left them. I hadn't even left Ireland yet. I said no way. I'm going over there for my career. I'm not, I'm coming back. <laughs> have not said that. Like, have said that. That's over half a lifetime now in Las Vegas. You've lived longer in Las Vegas than you ever did in the Shankill Road, pal. I remember I was in, Ve- I was in Belfast 22 and a half years. And I remember the, the year we got to 22 years in like seven months. Just that was one month we've lived here longer. And I said to my wife, you're here longer? And she's like, it's hard to believe in it. It's hard to believe. Yeah. But I said, yeah. And she was. She passed that. She was 19. When she came, she passed that margin for me. <laughs> but... It just Vegas is, a, is not just a gambling city. It's a it's a it's a good family city too, and it's a good city to come together too. Because mm. it's about three, about three million people. It's big enough. It's about three million people. When I came here, it was half a million people. Yeah, it's you know, so a hell of an expansion, all right. You know, don't want to expand because the Californians are. There's California is a neighboring state, four hour drive to, to Santa Monica Beach. Mm. It's so expensive in California, and. It's expensive here too, but it's, it's a lot cheaper than California, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so the Californians are selling up their homes down there, smaller home, and they can buy a bigger home here on cash. Mm. And there's no there's no state tax here, which saves people a lot of money as well. Yeah. So that's why Vegas is going to keep getting bigger. Even during the recession, Vegas was still growing. Yeah. And so it's never going to stop growing. Once the land is a problem, they've run out of land. There's hardly, yeah. there's hardly any land left here. And once you do that, then the property's going to go through the roof. Yeah. You know, so, but I think Vegas will always have it, always keep a home in Vegas. Yeah. Definitely it sounds it. like you fit right in there. Is there, when you look, and this is my final question for you this evening, because I'm sure it's daytime where you are, I'm sure you have work to do. It's what, what mountains, what mountains have you left to climb? Do you have any ambitions to say, right, these lads I train here, this fella or this girl is going to be a world champion and I won't stop until they are? Or do, is that part of your life past now? The mountains I want to climb. Although the funny thing about mountains, you talk about mountains. There's a, there's a mountain here in Henderson, and it's called the McCulloch Mountains. Oh, it's actually spelled the same way as my name too, McCulloch Way. But no, my like goals for me, you mean, or my fighters? I, I mean, I mean for you. But well, you know, it can be your fighters through you, so to speak. Did you want well, to achieve with them? Well, I was. I say Eddie, Eddie trained twenty world champions, and people don't realize. My first world champion, I was spoiled. My first world champion, I started training in 2006, a kid from Scotland, Alex Arthur. Mm-hmm. He became world champion with me. 
he was he was um WBO one thirty pound champion, which is super featherweight. Yeah. I had him for like, until he lost his belt, but people don't look at that. That was back in the day. But mm. my first fighter I trained was actually a world champion, Alexander. Yeah. And um, so I was able to spot a little bit. I've had guys fight. One guy fought for the world championship and lost. And I say, I work, I've worked with people in the corners and stuff like that. But I'm, I would love to get maybe as not, not, not worried about beating Eddie. I'd just like to be even close to what he did and even to be close to what he was as a, as a, as a trainer and as a person. You know, like a safe, he's a, he a better person than he was a trainer. Great, sensational trainer, but as a person, he just he didn't say didn't care about the money. And I try to be like that with my fighters. I try to be the same way with what he did in life and what he did in training. Mm. And if you like it, you, you like it. If you don't like it, leave. Mm. And that's the way Eddie was. I see Eddie cut fighters. I see him cut eyes off. Just leave. Mm. Don't do what you're told. Don't you don't belong here? Yeah. And I've did the same thing. I've actually did this. I did it on the only thing and. I just did that. What did I? Instead of just the guys hold on to them. Oh, you're okay. Just oh, don't you know we're about doing that? Just let you away with that. If you don't do it right, I'll just say leave, go somewhere else. And I say a few guys have left. Actually, came back to me and started doing the things. You know, they apologized me back. I have no problem with that. Mm. I'm not going to hate you. If I if I cut you off, I'm not going to like hate you or, or stop speaking to you. Mm. You know, if you don't listen to me, just go somewhere else. Then they find out when they go somewhere else, they're not getting the same thing they were getting here. Mm. And that's with Eddie. Eddie just gave his, it was, I say, going to the Premier League, you know what I mean? Mm. You know, you can stay in the Irish League and go to the Premier League. Where are you, you going to go? Premier League? Mm. Come on. Yes. <laughs> of course you're going to go. You know what I mean? That. So Eddie was the Premier League of boxing. You learn from the best, and I can hardly think of another boxer who's represented Ireland and himself the way that you have. Wayne McCulloch, thank you so much for your time. I Thanks for having me on. We'll save a good chat all day here. McCulloch's on his bike. He thinks he's he thinks he's won the fight. He doesn't want no damage. There goes the bell to end it. They both raise their arms. I think Yakushiji probably won that last round as well. But despite that, I have Wayne McCulloch as a two-point winner of that fight. Now, and what a moment this might be for McCulloch. Judge Perez, 118-116. Perez has scored it for McCulloch. Judge And the second judge, the South Korean, has given it to Yakushuji. It all depends on this last one. Tom Kazmarek, the American. Judge Kazmarek, 116-113. McCulloch! McCulloch has won the world championship on a split decision. The scorecards 116, 113, 118 and 116 to him. The South Koreans scored it by one round to Yakushuji. I think they've got that right, Glenn. He's got justice. He's done it the hard way in the other fellow's backyard. And that is one of the great performances by a British boxer. Wayne McCulloch is the WBC bantamweight champion and how he deserved it.
There you go, from Sky Sports, way back in 1995 when Wayne McCulloch won the WBC uh, World Championship uh, in Nagoya, Japan. A split decision victory there and uh, fascinating to hear the commentary there, how he is described at the end as a British boxer. And perhaps the most fascinating aspect of that conversation was what Wayne had to say about identity and uh, about his Irishness, about his Britishness, about growing up in the Shankill Road there, and about boxing in general. And I am delighted to, the, and I'm really grateful to him for taking the time to talk to us here on the Global Gale podcast. Lads, I'm not going to say much more. It's up to an hour and 30, an hour and 23 minutes as I'm talking to you. Holy smokes. I hope you enjoyed that just as much as I did talking to Wayne McCulloch. Back again next week with Larry Donnelly talking about voting rights for the Irish abroad. Uh, another fascinating conversation. Again, if there are women out there in the Irish Global community i want to talk to you right if you're up to anything whatsoever and i do i have reached out to a few right but it's always a difficult thing uh, for women to sort of put themselves in the public eye sometimes sometimes they feel that they they you know they don't want to do it maybe they might attract negative attention or that kind of thing or sometimes they feel they just don't deserve it believe you me you deserve it so if you're katie taylor we've previously had correspondent on the podcast if you're doing anything in business anything for your community whatsoever there's one i contacted down below in australia who's making all sorts of chicken fillet rolls and stuff like that for the community there that i'd love to talk to so any sort of ideas whatsoever and feel free to volunteer people if you know a woman uh, who has a fascinating story to tell get on to me and I'll get in touch with them or maybe you can get in touch with them on my behalf and tell them that I want to talk to them on the Global Gale podcast that is it for this episode take care of yourselves take care of one another and I'll be back again next week with another episode of the Global Gale good luck (laughs) 